Welcome to episode five of the Pirates of the Airways podcast. In these podcasts, I'm talking to some of the people involved in the land-based pirate radio world of the 1970s and 80s. This episode finds me chatting to Ivor Hurdson, who some of you may know better as Mark Ashton from RFL and Skyline Radio. Before we get started, let me thank amfm.org.uk and thepirateArchive.net for their help. If you want to get in touch with the podcast and make a comment or be a guest on a future episode, then please email us at piratepod7080 at gmail.com. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Pirates of the Airways podcast. This episode, we're going to be talking to another land-based pirate radio legend of the 70s and 80s. Good morning, it is at the moment, Ivor Hurdson. Good morning, Mark. Uh, very nice to speak to you. Many people know you as uh, Mark Ashton from Radio Free London, I think, is probably your best and well-known persona. Probably was, yeah. Um, although I kept that name going right through and appeared on many and various stations, um, including, as we'll speak later on, on the sort of 24-hour-a-day South East London station Skyline, which was probably my biggest claim to fame in some ways because I was there every day for two years. Um, the first thing I always ask everybody, because I'm always intrigued about this because of my own entry into the whole thing, when did you first become aware of pirate radio as opposed to just listening to the radio? Yeah, I must admit, this is quite an intriguing point. And I've, listening to your other podcasts is quite evident there's at least two breeds of land-based pirate. Um, those like myself and Nick earlier on who are older, let's say, and obviously started because of what we heard in 1964 with the boats coming out of Essex and those that later, like Piers, who came in and I know and, and, and was one of the 70s, hadn't heard Pirate Radio. I think I was about 10, so 1962, uh, my mum and dad bought me a, a Grundig Yacht Boy, which is still, I think, the best radio I ever had. But So I started prodding and poking with that and listening to shortwave stations uh, and also Radio Veronica from the Dutch coast. So my earliest pirate radio really was Dutch, which I had no knowledge of, but the music was good. And then, of course, all the, all the rumours started happening in 1964 that these two ships were being prepared and were going to appear off Essex. Uh, and I was tuned there waiting. I was literally waiting for the carriers to pop up and... Uh, so I really was with Caroline from the very first Easter Sunday, 1964, and that's what got me hooked. So you're listening to the offshore stations all through the 60s. It must have been a great time. I'm too young to remember that. Only born in 1963. So when they closed down in, in well, finally in 1968, what's your next move then? Where, where do you go then for your radio entertainment? And are you starting to think about it? yourself once they got towed away i didn't immediately think oh let's start a station up because i had no technical know-how at all and i started hearing things first there was uh, radio free london the original um am on 255 um there's a radio free london north and a radio free london south on a sunday and i started listening to the guys and got very loosely involved by making a few phone calls and turning up and making a nuisance of myself on a sunday morning and just got the bug i realized it could be done and there was a way of getting music radio back and then i started hearing things from as you already heard from nick catford the radio free helen broadcasting network 
which was, to all accounts, a total disaster because, as Nick said, nothing ever happened on time. People said they'd be there and weren't. People like me popped up who shouldn't be there and took over because when there was dead air on a Sunday, I'd pop my transmitter on and uh, suddenly there'd be this thing that wasn't part of the Helen Network joining in. So, I mean, that was very loose, loosely how I got involved because I heard phone numbers being given out and I made a phone call and arranged to have a meeting with all the guys on the Helen network, including Nick Catford. Um, and we went to a place called the Catherine Wheel in South Croydon. I think I was about 16, 17 at the time, barely been in a pub and, uh, walked in the door and found all these <laughs> long haired yobbos with transmitters on the table in the middle of the pub, which was, uh, a good sign. And it was through them I managed to find out at that point the, the, the way they all seemed to be getting on the air was going up to Lyle Street in London to G.W. Smith's um, and buying old ex-army 76 sets, which were the wartime transceivers. And they were meant to go on top band just off the bottom of the medium wave. And with a slight adjustment, and it was a slight adjustment, uh, and the insertion of the correct crystal, you're on medium wave. And for about, I think about eight pounds these things cost. And then a quick trip to buy a crystal for the frequency of your choice. Uh, and basically, I was on the air, um, which is how I started joining in with things on the Helen network, albeit not officially. And uh, I think I realized quite quickly, like Nick did, that it wasn't going to actually work as a network. And Nick went off his own way and made Radio Jackie, as we all know. Uh, and, and I basically decided everybody was calling their radio stations names after girls. There was Jackie, there was Caroline. And at the time, the Cuffpinks had a hit song with Tracy. So I thought, well, yeah, that, that'll do. And so we started up um, Radio Tracy with, with three or four people I'd known through school originally and then uh, met through radio. Um, one of them was Simon Burnett, who became Simon Barrett on Radio Caroline. There was Andy Allman, who became Arthur Burton later on on Caroline. And uh, we just started doing Radio Tracy on a Sunday originally, and then realised we were in competition with Radio Jackie, which wasn't yeah, our aim at all. So we reverted to going on to a Saturday broadcast. We did that for a fair while. Um, it was never going to get very far. We didn't have a very dedicated staff. And um, the Saturday spot well, probably wasn't the best anyway, I don't think, in retrospect. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a start. And with, with Radio Tracy, I assume that were you using field sites or were you at houses? And it was all pre-recorded, I assume. And Yeah, it was all, it was all pre-recorded. Um, originally, it was from houses. It was from my house and from Simon's house in Shortlands down near Bromley. Uh, and we, we, we quickly realised that probably broadcasting from our own homes regularly wasn't the way to success. And the great thing with these number 76 sets from the um, ex-army surplus was they had a built-in rotary converter. So you could literally plug a 12-volt battery on and run your mains in the middle of a field. So we did move out to little field sites around southeast London, and, and that was the move we made. That, <laughs> there was a funny story to tag to that, because at the, about that point, uh, we used to go along to any court cases that were ensuing through Radio Jackie, mainly at that point, and um, just to see what would happen when we finally had to go to court one day. Uh, and I walked into, it was the court in Croydon. Um, I walked in the front door, met Nick, who was happened to be there, and he was about to, to introduce me to Mr. Gotts and Mr. Frisbee of the post office as he was then and before he 
could. They said my name and where I lived. And I thought, oh, dear, they obviously know too much about me. So I never really broadcast from my home again because uh, I realised that their intelligence was more than I thought it was. Again, looking back on those days, I always assumed that they could track you down and find you if they really wanted to. And I think we were all sort of uh, sneaking around in forests, in my case, Epping Forest, uh, thinking that we were being very clever. And the truth of the matter is, if they decided they were going to radio, they were going to radio, and that was that, I think, pretty much the way it went in those days. Radio Tracy, how long did how, what frequency, first of all, how long did it last and why did it close down? Yeah, that was on 235 metres, I think, so we were adjacent to Radio Jackie. I think it was always a, this, this bid to try and get other people's listeners. Um, and I reckon it probably ran in all honesty, for only about 18 months. Uh, we did at least two, two Christmases because we broadcast from Simon's Attic in Shortlands live. We actually, that's the only time we went live. We did Christmas and Boxing Day for two years. Um, uh, and it was live from his loft with his mum bringing roast dinners up the stairs to the loft for us on Christmas Day. So I reckon it was probably... Um, and I think the only reason in all honesty, that it died was because we were definitely in the mood to move to FM. Not that I thought the medium wave had died, because I, I still dream of it not being dead, but uh, I, I think at that time we, we just had an opportunity to buy an FM transmitter, which was very early on in the days of FM. There was a, a licensed radio amateur, whose name I won't mention, but he built us our first transmitter, um, and we then decided, you know, should we call it Radio Tracy, should we not? And suddenly the RFL thing came back to my mind and thought, well, I really did like the whole essence of Radio Free London, and hence really Radio Tracy morphosized into Radio Free London on FM, and there was no looking back from that point. We did a few AM broadcasts after that, um, but, but very little um, for the next 15 years or so, really. Okay, so RFL reappears. Um, what year are we talking about there? I think 1971. I must be, I'm getting so old now. When you first contacted me about doing this, I thought, will I actually have a good enough memory of what happened? I was amazed when Nick was coming out with, you know, on May the 3rd, 1971. And I thought, wah! But I think 71 probably was the start of the RFL on FM. Um, there had been earlier RFL FM transmissions, but nothing to do with me or us. It was um, when... BBC local stations started up. There was a group of people who involved a lot of the offshore guys, certainly Chris Carey, who was Spangles Muldoon on Caroline, and Stevie Merrick, and I think probably Chicago had something. They used to come on the same day as BBC Radio London started up. They brought on Radio Free London. And the same day that BBC Radio Solent opened up down by the Isle of Wight, there was Radio Free Solent just popped up on the same day. And they, they did these as a regular thing. Every time a BBC station opened up, this group of pirates appeared um, on the same day. And they all eventually went back on to R&I and so on. So, um, and welcome to Radio Free London, broadcasting on 94.8 megahertz, VHF FM. Radio Free London is with you for the next four hours up until the hour of 12 midnight tonight. Radio Free London is an independent clandestine station broadcasting to the people of London every Saturday night at 8pm until 12 midnight. Do 
want any requests given out during the evening, or in fact next Saturday evening, then you can telephone Radio Free London to our telephone number, which is 01698-8447. Once again, that number, 6698-8447. But in 71, I think, was when we started our FM on 92, and it started off only with a few hours on a Sunday, um, and it just grad- gradually grew and grew as more and more people joined us, and was very, very pleased to have lots of the radio, radio Jackie people appeared. Um, we had uh, Jerry James and... John Dawson and Andy Orman again, um, and, and we, we just grew into um, a bigger version of what we started off from, really, and, and we slowly uh, morphed into a bit of a rock station as opposed to a middle-of-the-road poppy station. Um, in fact, to the point in the end, as you may recall, uh, we ran two services. There was the daytime one, which was more poppy, and then there was the rock service in the evening that carried on till the early hours of the next morning. So really, that was how that all kicked off. My first experience of um, Radio Free London RFL was on 92, probably about, again, about 1978, 79. And it was always a rock station in my head. I think it's the first FM pirate I ever heard. That and Radio Invicta, obviously, who were the other big FM station regularly every week at that time. And then the evening stations, Telstar South, Radio North Kent uh, and Thameside as well, the other ones uh, that I always listen to as well. Um, or I could hear, should I say it? Yeah, that's the other thing I had done. From time to time, I got dragged in. I was on Radio Telstar South at one point for quite a few weeks and on a thing called Radio Sheila, which you may or may not remember or have heard of, but that was a bit earlier. I was just dragged out to do programmes. <laughs> so with, with RFL... Um, I, I, your engineer as well, I assume. And well, are you broadcasting from field sites, tower blocks, houses? Again, how did, in seventy one? This is before the development of what became, you know, certainly in the early eighties. I knew all the guys from Alice's Restaurant and Phoenix and Zodiac very well, and they were all linked to tower blocks. How were you doing this in seventy one, seventy two, seventy three? Certainly, certainly for the first half of the 70s, maybe a bit later, we were completely field sites uh, with transistor inverters, uh, a pile of car batteries, the famous EL3302 tape recorder, uh, and it was various field sites around South London, um, notably Sydenham Hill, one of the famous ones where Radio Jackie and us shared it for a long time, and out to sort of Keston near Biggin Hill. It was nice high place with good view across London, and we just uh, used that and worked a way of having cars of security, all the normal stuff that we'd seen on Jackie and so on. Um, and probably for five or six years, we had raids. We had very few court cases because we basically were prepared to run and leave it all. And uh, we had, um, most of us were into building the transmitters as well by then, so we shared that load. Um, and the materials for building them were quite plentiful in those days. Um, and we had a guy who we discovered after the initial FM transmitter that was made by this radio amateur, uh, we then discovered a guy called Michael Martin who lived in Croydon, not a stone's throw from the pub I'd first met Nick Catherine in. Um, and he was a genius, and he, he developed more and more on the 
FM stereo in as well. And, and, and he was, and we finally gave him his own radio program. You might remember the Michael Martin show. It was like late at night. Uh, and by that point we had morphed into a real rock station, as you say. I mean, we started off a bit poppy and then became more and more rock based. And uh, yeah, I mean, we then, it probably was the 1976, 77. I think we'd, we'd watched what was happening with other stations and that they were going up on tower blocks. And I never liked it. I must admit, I didn't ever like basically getting a bunch of keys, going up on the roof, breaking and entering, stealing the electric. But at the end of the day, it was for a good cause. And it certainly, I mean, worked. We, we used a lot of the tower blocks around Deptford um, almost continually for about three years. Um, and, and it certainly did the job. And at what point did you start going live, linking to the to the site? Was was that something that you did relatively early on with the tower blocks, or was it still tapes? No, we 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 never did. In fact, all the RFL stuff was always taped. Um, I don't think a single broadcast in that period was ever live. It was always taped. We we developed a guy called um, Kenny Myers, who you may recall the name of. He was one of our stalwarts who was always on. He was on RFL from the start right through till the end, and even when they were on shortwave in the eighties. And he'd he'd perfected a system which is now notorious, really. But he'd he'd grind down the centre hub of a tape spool to get more tape on, and would then overspill on a ten inch tape. So we actually got running at one and seven eighths. Would you believe slowest speed, worst quality? Um, but we ran one tape through from about. 10 in the morning till one o'clock the next morning it was one double play tape which could have mangled at any point but um it, it meant we could actually not go back to the transmitter at all it was all taped during the week and put onto this one ultra long play tape and we even rigged a system whereby when the tape ran out we used to use um a tape machine made by Truvox, who I think only make uh, floor cleaners now. But this one particular tape machine had uh, an almost endless stock of, um, and they had a tape switch that ran out. When the tape ran out, it turned the tape recorder off. So we just ran it so that when the tape ran out, it turned the transmitter off. Um, so we knew that it couldn't come back on. It wasn't like a Vox control thing that could come back on if there was a noise on the line. So once the tape ran out, the transmitter went off and we tended to not go back till Monday lunchtime and pick the gear up. So that was a safe way of doing it from our point of view. It's, it sounds very low tech, but very high tech at the same time, strangely, um, in, in a Heath Robinson kind of way. But um, it worked. Uh, as I said, I, I listened to RFL quite a lot uh, because it was my kind of music as well. And um, it worked, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was incredibly low tech because not only, I mean, we could have run that, that um, tape sort of switch through a relay. No, we ran mains through the switch. So when the tape ran out, there's a huge arc as the transmitter <laughs> went off. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous, really, but it worked. Um, and we ran that for probably three or four years up tower blocks. Um, and we just never went back to it until the following day. And if it had gone, it had gone. You know, it was one of those things. Did you have any close encounters, any any close brushes with the law uh, around that period? Um, yeah, we, we, we did. Uh, it, and it was the law, not the post office or whatever they were calling themselves at that point. I mean, we, we were literally, we'd been using a, um, a, a derelict house on the top of Crystal Palace. Uh, 
um, which was a lovely house, but it had been derelict for some years, and we decided to use that one week rather than a tower block or a field site. Um, and we went into this house, and, of course, we were spotted by neighbours um, going in, uh, and nothing happened on the day, but uh, I think it was on a Saturday or Sunday, and on the Monday I had a knock at the front door, and they got my car number, and they come round to see what I'd been doing on that previous weekend. And uh, it didn't help that as I was walking out the door, I was walking out the door with um, an aerial in my arms, going putting on the next week's transmitter. So they caught me with the gear in my hand. Um, but in fact, nothing ever came of that. Uh, we, we, we don't know what happened to the transmitter. Or they, they took everything away. Um, and we tried some months later, um, a guy called Brian Horn, who you may have heard of, he was, uh, he was the guy that was behind the, the LTIR, which is the Land, excuse me, London Transmitter of Independent Radio. But he, he had a great amount of nerve and, and guile and decided we should go and ask for the uh, transmitter back from the police station in Norbury. Um, and we went down to try and do so. And strangely, the whole thing had never happened. There was no record of us ever being there on that evening of the transmitter being confiscated. I'm not pointing fingers <laughs> at Norby Police Station, but something something happened and our, our equipment was vanished. Um, so that that was it. We, we, we never used a derelict house again. Let's say that much. I, th- I think we all lost transmitters in strange circumstances. I mean, funny enough, you're talking about the police. My weirdest one with the police, where we were we were coming back from a transmission site, and in those days we were young, we didn't drive and stuff, so we were pulling everything along a little push cart um, with the car batteries and everything, and uh, and the policeman stopped us, uh, stopped next to us in a car. What are you doing? So we thought, oh, what are we going to say? And we went through this whole elaborate story, and eventually I just said, look, we're pirate radio people, we've been transmitted. He went. Why, why didn't you just tell me? I thought you'd stolen the car batteries from someone. He said, go on, go home. <laughs> and and that, was, that was pretty much, I, I think he just looked on us as naughty children, you know, go on, off you go. Um, I mean, we did have other, other, other situations with the police, uh, uh, which weren't so pleasant, but I never got, I never got caught, I never got taken to court. So uh, I count myself as quite lucky, to be honest. Me too. I think virtually everybody on... RFL certainly ends up with a court case against them at some point, but somehow I managed to evade even with that one visit one night to Norby Police Station, but nothing ever came of it. So um, you and I are both blessed. I find talking to people, I find that it, it's less common than you think. Some people obviously quite, you know, Nick and people like that, but uh, quite a lot of people manage to pretty much get away with it almost entirely. So Radio Free London continues till in my head, about 1982, would it be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, by that point, I mean, I got married in 1980 um, and my wife and I started to have a family and so I drifted away, to be quite honest, and RFL ran on, uh, ran on, I think, quite late into the 80s and even into the early 90s, I think, with big gaps. Uh, they carried on on shortwave as well, uh, shortwave and... Um, medium wave. I think the FM was dropped, but I think they carried on shortwave and AM for quite a long time. But I drifted away by that point. So my story with RFL virtually ended in probably the late 70s. Again, I, I find talking to people, a lot of people start, you know, just when they're leaving school around sort of 14, 15, 16, and then they do lots of pirate radio between then and a 
early twenties when they all we all find out that girls exist and uh, and we get married and 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 start having families. <laughs> You'll laugh at this. My my wife will be married now forty three years next year, but her first date with me. Her very first date, I took her to Beddington Sewage Works, which was a Radio Jackie site, because I was on Radio... Oh, that's the other thing I hadn't mentioned. I did join Radio Jackie for a while um, as a presenter and site staff, uh, and, and that was one of the days um, I couldn't not go because I'd said to Nick I'd be there, and you know, uh, and suddenly um, my... My wife's first date was on a sewage farm. It was an ex-sewage farm. It wasn't. Yeah, Nick gave us great detail of the of the sewage farm days, <laughs> um, and how they used to run the, the transmitter for that. And they they used it for a long, long time as well, didn't they? From what I know. Yeah, I think that and that and Sydenham Hill they used almost exclusively for about two or three years. I mean, it was one or the other. Um, it, it was so easy to 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 find if you wanted to. One thing I did want to ask you about, um, and another station I remember. So we'll, we'll move on to Skyline in a minute. But a station I actually remember listening to uh, because um, I was a little bit in awe of Dave Small for some reason. <laughs> I don't know quite why. I just think he was a very good presenter. But I remember, um, was it County Radio? Uh, I remember listening to it. Yeah, I actually made a note here to, to mention, although it was short-lived, sort of Jerry James and Dave Small and, and myself had County Radio running over in Surrey for a while. Well, I could hear it. Pretty well. I lived in Woodford Green, which is Essex, um, uh, Essex London borders, northeast London, and I could hear County Sound probably a little bit better than I could hear Jackie because they were both running twenty four hours, and uh, County sounded sounded fine to me. Uh, Jerry and Dave were both brilliant, brilliant radio presenters. I mean, I had great time for both of them. In fact, it was my f- fault that Dave Small, Dave Scott, first got into broadcasting. I can claim fame for that one because I was when I left school, I went to work at a company called CES, which was the Pye and Phillips service firm down the Purley Way in Croydon. Um, and I went there. I don't know why. I didn't, didn't know what else to do with my life at that point. And uh, so I went to work there. And about the first month in, this guy, Dave, came to work on my bench with me, servicing pie Type 3 TV tuners. And I started talking to him about what I was doing on a Sunday uh, with Radio Tracy at that point. And he said, oh, that's a good idea. And hence, Dave Small was born. <laughs> Lovely stuff. You'll see there. And that one's called Don't Go. Right, so before that record, a County Radio card sticker, yeah? Right, send us a large SAE and mail that to County Radio, 87 Carshilton Road, Sutton in Surrey. They're really nice, I must confer. Uh, usual sort of thing on a white background there, blue and red. Uh, but they do compare, funny enough, with certain other radio stations' card stickers. And um, we're not talking about the radio station, which is sitting about... Ooh, about seven, eight metres below us. No, we don't mean that one. So for a County Radio car sticker then, large SAEs please to 87 Cars, Shorten Road, Sutton in Surrey. And limit your amount please to about five, yeah? Now, I want to move on to Skyline Radio. I'll tell you a little bit about what my thing is with Skyline Radio. Um, I used to be on um, the original Phoenix Radio, which was on Medium Wave 214 back in uh, the late 70s. Yep. Uh, and I was on that and uh, Steve Justin as many people know was my on air name and I used to have a show on that called the Skyline Show now Skyline Radio came sometime after that and I used to sit there and stamp my feet and go they've nicked the name of my show they've nicked the name of my show now I, I have little doubt that no one on Skyline ever ever heard that show 
And if they did, they probably didn't remember I called it the Skyline Show. But I've always liked to think I'm the one who named Skyline Radio. I think I think you you can claim claim fame for that one. Like I claim to be Dave Small's midwife. Uh, <laughs> you can claim fame for that one. Well, maybe you heard it in your subconscious. I'd like to think so. Anyway, so tell tell me about Skyline because I knew them as a AM FM twenty four hour southeast. London Radio Jackie-style setup. Yeah, the news had come through on the grapevine that this loophole had been found. Radio Jackie were going to exploit it, whereby we realised after all these years that the powers that be couldn't confiscate the transmitter. They had to go to court first, get a court order. You know all this, I'm sure. But that was the change, or not the change, but the loophole that was found by Radio Jackie's people and also uh, Bob Dunn and Stuart Vaughan that ran Skyline. And they came up with the idea virtually simultaneously. I mean, they were very, they've both been on Radio Jackie for many years. And I think, you know, the talk had got round. And obviously, Jackie were doing it for Southwest London. And so Bob and Stuart's view was, well, let's do it for Southeast London and run a real community station, do it on AM and FM and go 24 hours. They did that without much thought. They just got the transmitters built, got them on air, got a midpoint up a link uh, from near where Bob was based at the time, which was very convenient, um, and basically got the station on the air. I'd heard it, knew nothing more about it than that. And I think on day two of it being on the air testing, there's a knock on my front door. It's Bob. Um, Ivor, any chance of you coming out of retirement because we need some disc jockeys? Because he got the thing on the air but hadn't actually thought about the presentation staff. So he said, could you just give us a hand? Help us out for a couple of weeks. Uh, and in the event, I was there for the whole two years. Um, started off doing the breakfast show, which was not convenient because I was also working full time and had to go into work at eight in the morning, whiz out by nine to do a breakfast show from nine to eleven or something, and then explain to the bosses why I've been out of the office for two hours every day. So after a short while of doing that, I then rescheduled my working day and ended up um, doing drive time uh, five till seven every weekday for the whole two years till the new Broadcast Act came in and changed it all. Back in time to 1964. Good Lord, I just realised how old I am. I was at school when... But yeah, Bob, Bob always comes up with this tale of how he only asked me to do two weeks and then uh, there I was two years later still, still doing, and it was live, of course, it was live every day. It was the first time I'd ever done what I considered to be real radio because we were, we were having people in the studio to interview. We had local groups and bands coming in. We had local news and events given out all the time. Um, and basically it was real, real radio for the first time in my life, and I loved it, and I would go back like a shot in a heartbeat. I would do it all again if only we could. But... Um, yeah, I, I, I think those those Skyline days were were wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I, as I said, I always remember Skyline as being a very professional, well-run station that was always there. Um, at that time, so that was a, would have been oh, early 80s, I, I was sort of beginning to get involved with Shoestring for a little while, Radio Shoestring from East London. And then, uh, to be honest, family life took over. You know, I had a daughter and so on and so forth. So it all just became 
a little bit chaotic. <laughs> and I fell out of the whole scene for quite a while, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I did the same thing in, in the late 70s. That's why I dropped out of the RFL thing and county and everything. And it wasn't until, literally until Bob knocked on my door and said, is there any chance you could help us out for a couple of weeks? So I thought, yeah, for a couple of weeks I can. But otherwise I had, you know, and then after Skyline, I didn't do anything else really. We did try for a short while to bring an RFL online presence, um, which a friend of mine who's passed away now, sadly, um, but uh, we just ran it 24 hours a day from my office at work <laughs> and just got some programs pre-recorded and bunged them on and just let it run. But um, I'm, I'm sort of one of those people who I, I like listening to an online station. To my mind, it's not real radio. I'm not listening to it on a wireless, you know. I, I, I still have this thing about radio being radio and, you know, podcasts and Spotify being what they are, which are great, you know. But um, to me, radio is something that's broadcast and picked up on the radio, and that's part of the challenge, isn't it, or the, the way it's broadcast. I do podcasts because it's the the, the current way of, of getting these stories across, and, and I've always enjoyed telling and listening to stories. I agree with you about listening to radio and I probably like you, I still have a medium wave radio. I've got a yacht boy in the corner here, which doesn't work at the moment, but I'm trying to get someone to fix to fix it. I don't know if you're interested. Um, but, um, I, you know, I still have medium wave radio. I tune around. I now live right over in Shropshire. I live just on the edge of uh, Telford, a town called Wellington. And um, I can just about hear Radio, radio Caroline on medium wave here. But it, it's it's still a weird thrill um, listening to a station on medium wave or, or, you know, one of the one of the various stations around here. We're quite close to uh, Ludlow, which is Sunshine Radio, of course. Uh, another old pirate, um, uh, you know, and I, I can hear all them. Um, so, you know, I still get that thrill and I know what you mean about listening on the radio. I'm also on an online station as well, which I've been doing for a couple of years, two or three years now, uh, from where I used to live in Northamptonshire, but I still do their Sunday morning show. Um, and I enjoy it. I love doing live radio. I really enjoy it. I've never been paid for doing radio, but but uh, but I really enjoy it. Um, just going quickly back to the RFL thing, what kind of response did you get with RFL? What was your feedback? Um, it was, at times, pretty phenomenal. Um, you know, we only ever had mailing address and phone number. It was before the days of an email and stuff. But, yeah, we, we used to... We, I mean, we actually started off giving out a phone box phone number and it got to the point where we couldn't expect someone to sit in there all night because it was constant it was non-stop uh, and so in fact the guy whose house housed the studio started taking the phone calls at home so he could just lie there on his bed listen to music drinking his whiskey and answering the phone uh, and yeah we, we we regularly had maybe 200 300 phone calls over a broadcast uh, which we deemed to be successful you know it probably wouldn't be in modern day with uh, the way stuff's done now with emails and all the rest of it. But, yeah, I felt the response was pretty good. And we used to get uh, a regular like fan base, if you like, of letters from not the same old people every time, but certainly a lot of people were were quite addicted to RFL, I think. You know, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, talking about feedback, um, I have had a conversation with, with various people from BBC Local Radio who I've talked to um, about things. And they don't get a lot of feedback. They have, they know they have listeners, but as far as people emailing them, texting them, and stuff, it's quite hard to get people to contact. And I think people are distracted in a lot of directions now. I think what it was when we were doing radio, 
is that, you know, you had LBC Capital Radio London, then you had the BBC stations. That was pretty much it. And a lot of people were listening to the Pirates, and I think they did get quite good audiences. Uh, you know, once you discovered them, I think people became quite big fans of, certainly, I know Thameside had a lot of fans. Alice's Restaurant were very popular. Um, you know, Zodiac, uh, Jackie, all, all the stations that I term to be well-run professional stations seem to have very, very good feedback. Yeah, and certainly going back to <laughs> jumping again, Skyline days, um, we ran at least three that I can recall outside uh, broadcasts um, and just announced them on the day. We were in pubs in the Old Kent Road or whatever. We announced them on the day and the response from that was phenomenal. I mean, we just literally had queues of people down the Old Kent Road to try and get in the pub. Uh, and we actually said to ourselves, right, try and raid us now. <laughs> because we just knew what had happened. You know, it'd be like, um, and we did one in um, Burgess Park, which is a big park in sort of Southwark. And um, we had a whole day there doing an outside broadcast. It was a perfect time for them to raid us, really. But nothing happened because the park was packed with people with Skyline T-shirts on. Um, and it was, it was, I would think of that, that outside broadcast there, there was probably... 200 plus came along to the park just for our broadcast. And we had the Skyline girls in their cheerleaders outfits and uh, Neil, Neil Midder, who became Neil Francis on Capital later. He was there doing the Skyline programming and, and it, was, it was really, really good days, you know. It, and I think the feedback was there. And I think, as you say, it was different then because they hadn't got the other distractions of, I don't know, whatever, Facebook and Instagram and emailing people and playing games on their phones and all the rest of it. There was, yeah, that's what was there. The, en the entertainment was on the radio. Yeah, definitely. I, I think you're right about that. And I do know a number of stations who did outside broadcasts from various places. And I, to my knowledge, and I again, people contact me if, if I'm not right here, but I don't think anybody got raided while they were doing an actual proper outside broadcast with the general public. Not that I know of, anyway. Um, I could the only the only big raid I know, obviously, is the is the final Radio Jackie raid in in '85, I think, uh, where there was a massive crowd outside. I was just about to say that's the only one I know of was that final studio raid on Jackie, but uh, that was just putting the nail in the coffin, wasn't it? So, uh, but that was the only one I can think of. Okay, so Mark Aston, I've heard some. What's your next move? So that's finished. You've tried to revive RFL online and so on. Is there other things that you've been doing? What are you doing now? Where, where, what fills the gap, basically? I don't know, to be honest. I've been asked that by somebody else recently and I haven't got a clue what I do I'm getting old now, <laughs> so I don't need so much to fill my time, I don't think. I'm in the middle of building a studio here with a view. I've had a couple of people to ask me to do an online program, um, and I have no way or had no way of actually doing so. So I've got a couple of iMacs here, which you can't see, and a Yamaha mixer in the middle. Yeah, I, I'm just getting to the point where I could prepare myself for reincarnating Mark Ashton on an online service that wanted me. That's excellent. That would be great to hear. I'd enjoy that very much indeed, I think. Like I say, you, Mark Ashton is one of the names I remember from, from when I was listening, you know, back in the early 80s and stuff. And uh, RFL was definitely the first FM station I ever picked up on 92. Um, like most people, I had, a, I had a music centre and thought it would be much better to pick up stations. Turns out, obviously, it wasn't. <laughs> um, and and, and a, a portable was much better, but um, no, that that's really good. So that that's your thing now. Are, are you are you retired? Are you still working? Are you? 
I'm semi-retired. I'm 70 now. I was 70 a couple of months ago. And I'm semi-retired. I was, the last 25 years of my life, I was actually um, a printer. And I went semi-retired about 10 years ago. And the room you can see me in here, apart from being the studio in this corner, is also a print workshop over, over there. So I'm still doing some print work from home and keeping... It's really just beer money, but it's keeping me in money to do a few bits and pieces and finance the studio building. Uh, one thing I did want to ask you about, County Sand, were they running a lot of power? And how did they do it? Were they going for a house and all that sort of thing? Um, at the time that I was with them, they were. it was running about 250 watts, I believe, and it was from a field site. It was from one of the old uh, Radio Jackie field sites at the a place they called The Island, which was in Carshorton in Surrey. And Radio Jack had used it for years because it was, what it says, it's an island uh, with like a, like a river runs right round it. And uh, they had an area up. There's a full sort of quarter wave, I think, for 227. So it was a fair old long wire. Um, and I believe um, the good thing was there was only one way in and one way out. So I think they felt it was a quite safe and secure site. Um, and I believe they were using that for some, quite some time, but um, I didn't get heavily involved. I was only with them for probably a few months. Um, I don't know what happened quite, but I didn't carry on my association with them. For no reason I can remember, I, um, I liked everybody involved. It just, I think it was what you say, girl, girls suddenly appeared and wives and children were springing onto the scene and suddenly I... I hadn't got time for radio, which is awful to say, but yeah, when you become a father and all the rest of it, suddenly um, time becomes precious, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, well, it does. And, and I think that's why we all ended up sort of fizzling out of it. And unless it became something that uh, the, the guys like Piers, obviously, and other people I know who ended up making money out of the whole thing, for them, it, they, they just went from not, not being paid to being paid, then to be being paid to do things legally. And they just moved into another, into that realm. Um, whereas uh, people like me, who was a purely a presenter, I was never an engineer. I could attach a medium wave aerial to a medium wave transmitter, tune it up a bit, and that was it. I was off. Um, but I, ne I never made a single transmitter in my life. But um, I, I just think the people who, who continued are the people who ended up moving into a, a, the legal realm of, of radio. And I know that there's quite a few people who are, who are still involved even now um, on quite a high level. Um, okay, well... It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for telling us all about your, uh, your life in Land-Based Pirate Radio. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much as well, Mark. And uh, I'm glad I was of use to you in your quest for getting these podcasts done. I've loved the ones so far. I've heard them all. And I just hope I'm worthy of the next one. Thank you for listening to this Pirates of the Airways podcast. If you enjoyed it, then please like, subscribe, follow and review. You can also listen to our previous episodes featuring Piers Easton, Nick Catford, Steve Marshall and Steve Leyland via your podcast provider of choice. We'll be back on the 24th of August with a new episode and a new guest for you to listen to. Until then, remember, you can get in touch with us via our email address, which is piratepod7080 at gmail.com. is a 1386 audio production.